Wait, have you not seen the director's cut? Have you only seen the theatrical cut with the voiceover? Yeah. Meredith. We're talking about different movies. My assignment wasn't wasn't to see the director's cut. We're talking about different movies. I went. <laughs> it's so fucking different. That's insane. I'm sorry. It never occurred to me. I, you have to hunt out the theatrical cut. I had no idea. No, it's the only thing that came up. I went to watch it. I had to rent it. And it was, I'm pretty sure the theatrical, well, it, well, it had, it had a voiceover. It had Harrison stuff. Ford saying, that was city speak in the beginning, uh, pigged in of yeah. all these different languages. I was not given, I was not given options. You should watch it again. You should watch the director's cut. So I'm serious. <laughs> so you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, sorry. these nuggets I'm of knowledge so in your head, you gotta, you gotta have them come out. Hey, your yeah, mouth. Fair enough. You're on Midnight Local, the podcast from How to Drink, where we just talk about things. Movies. Uh, pop culture. Maybe some video games. That too. All the things. The things. The stuff and things. All of the stuff and the things on Midnight Local. Let's get to it. Welcome back to Midnight Local, your podcast about the fuck ever. <laughs> uh, Genius. I feel like we should deliver uh, more on the what the fuck ever parts of this show, though. I feel like we have what not really. What the fuck ever. I don't think uh, we've done enough what the fuck ever's. We need like a, we, we need one of those podcasting neon lights that says like off topic that we just like turn on when we yes. go off topic and then we turn it off when we come back to the point. I don't know why it has a pull string in my imagination. Like you have to reach back and like. A lot of neon <laughs> lights do have a pull string, so. Um, yeah, maybe we should try recording an episode too, where we just like, we just bullshit and see what happens if we start talking about movies or not and stuff like that, because maybe like, <laughs> that's how we fulfill one to be easy. Um, and two, you know, maybe we get into some, some real, uh, off topic stuff. That's good for the show that way, you know, deliver on our, our permanent off topic promise. Yes. We did that a little bit with gladiator, but we did. Yeah. I guess having, knowing that we both watched a thing. Is probably a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Blade Runner today, uh, which is you know Blade Runner. It's like a seminal movie. It, Seminal—that's the wrong word. Well, it kind of is actually. Seminal is the right word. It is the seminal cyberpunk film. Yeah, it is the first movie that we can successfully uh, we can tr- probably first movie we can truly call cyberpunk. Um, I've had some people say, "Well, it's not cyberpunk." I'm going to explain why it is later. Um, but yeah, um, it's, uh, it's Blade Runner. It is like a big deal. I think that if you're uninitiated, you know, if you're film interested, if you're a movie file, you hear Blade Runner, you see some images from it, you think, but it's not, it's not like a good movie. It's like a big spectacle piece. I had like that attitude once when I was young, I think it's a big action Runner specifically. With like anything, you know, that wasn't like yeah. high, like a black and white nineties art house film or something. Like oh, that. oh, 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 oh. You know, like I went through my snobbery. Um, but like in fact, Blade Runner is one of the movies that I mean it's a movie that is taught at film. It's a important piece of cinema, like so many movies that are happen to also have high production value. It's like not yeah. a, it was just like a nineties thing where it was like, eh hey, man, it's gotta be dog man ninety-five or else I'm not even interested and like all that you know, shit. What's what was interesting about this one for me as I was looking into it is like um they set out to make something mainstream, but they never yeah. really quite 
the budget for it because a lot of things that happened in between. So the intention was a high budget spectacle and they ended up with that, but in the weirdest way possible. Yeah. Like they lost their studio because the studio ran out of money. Then they they had to reshop this film like three or four times in the middle of like set building. And then they had some combination of like Warner brothers put forward some money, but then it was like private film financiers who really got this movie made. Uh, But it falls under the Warner brothers studio because they were the studio that gave it money and probably distributed it. But they're the distributor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ridley had Ridley. So first off, this is Ridley Scott's third movie, which is kind of crazy. It's after alien. Yeah. He had done the duelists. Alien, mm-hmm. and then this. It's movie number three. Yeah. He had directed commercials for years before that. And he's a he he really is a um a cinematographer slash director. Uh if you read about the guy, he he knows cameras. And it's actually it's funny because they both did the movies from the same um series, but you hear the same thing about uh James Cameron. Like he in a, in a particularly like now, I think that's a lot more common because it's easier to pick up and learn that stuff. But back in the days of film, like that was a specialty, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Being really technical about it. Exactly. From what I have read directors who said, I want you to shoot this on this lens at this aperture with this shutter speed, you know, that was an uncommon thing for a director to be able to do. They would say, I would like it to look like this. Let me see mm-hmm. the framing Oh, that works. But like, yeah, like Ridley, Cameron, they like knew what they wanted. They could grab the Cameron operates. Cameron operates his own yeah. camera, which is crazy. Um, I don't know that Ridley does that all the time, but I'm pretty sure I've seen him operate. He can. Well, and you see it in the way that people talk about the film. Like I'm, I'm reading we got up in front of me, a piece of trivia. And it's, it's like, you know, directly Ridley, director Ridley Scott and the photog- the director of photography, like achieved this shot by doing this. It's not right. Like even with why, why Orson Welles cinematographer on uh, Citizen Kane gets top billing is because he was the mastermind figuring out all of that. And. Oh, yeah. You you credit him with that. And and with Ridley Scott, it sounds like it's like, yeah, he's got his, his director of photography who's definitely helping him. But he's his hands are in that as well. Who is the cinematographer on that, though? I'm going to find out right now. On Citizen Kane. Jordan Cronworth. I mean, I'm not like, uh, okay, so I'm not a guy who knows all the cinematographers, but Jordan Cronworth was the cinematographer. Um, I He did a hell of a job on this. I don't know what else he did. Sorry, just to clarify, Jordan uh, Cronworth was the cinematographer on Blade Runner. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah, thought yeah. you were I looking before, up Greg, Citizen Kane. Oh, no, I know that guy. It's Greg Toland. Yeah. I mean, I know that off the top of my head. Uh, and actually, to the exact point you were just making, uh, um, <laughs> I love that now we're comparing uh, Blade Runner to... Uh, Citizen Kane, but honestly, I think it, it's it's the same. They are on the same tier. They have that level of influence together. Um, but yes, uh, uh, Orson Welles, it's his first movie. And I've seen him in interviews saying, well, the only reason I was able to make it was because I didn't know you couldn't. I was mm-hmm. telling our camera department to do things that no one had ever done with a camera before. I didn't know they hadn't been done with a camera before. I didn't know that hadn't been done in editing before. I had no background. He was a theater director. He was directing uh, the Mercury Playhouse in New York, I think, which was actually a works public, uh, project. It's like the WPA arts thing. So he had like all these grants, like he got to do, um, 
he did a production of it would probably have aged very poorly mm-hmm. but he did do an all black production of um not hamlet the play why the scottish play why can't i think of its actual name macbeth macbeth yeah uh, and he like recast it to be like a story in haiti and stuff like that and um mm-hmm. uh uh i don't know i mean he had i mean it was I, there wasn't blackface in it, you know what i mean like it, it i assume yeah, that I- uh, and he was a pretty, he was extremely progressive guy for his era. So I don't know. I bet it was probably actually, uh, I bet it, it may have aged pretty well. I, I would not be entirely surprised if that were the case. You know, I'm sure if he was doing anything where he was sticking his foot in it, somebody would have said, uh, hey, Orson, you know, maybe we want to do it this way. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it was his first movie. And, um, and as he said, he didn't know he couldn't do things. Um, which is what your point is about, like, you know, the relationship between a cinematographer and a director. A lot of times the director has like really very limited technical knowledge or they used yeah. to, used to be more common. I don't think that's common anymore. Um, I don't want to only talk about this movie from a technical perspective, but we really should talk about it from a technical perspective because it was, it did, it is the height of a kind of an art form that I think no longer exists in a lot of ways. Hmm. Go, what do you, what do you mean? Uh, okay. We'll talk about it now. Uh, I, I did not realize it until I saw this in an interview um, or maybe I read it in a book, but that somebody pointed out never again will a movie be made the way that that movie mm-hmm. was made because yeah. it was made that way like before technology let you do it a different way. So there's no blue screens in Blade Runner. There's no compositing. There's no um, there's no optical printer use even. Yeah, Everything you see is in the camera right? There are stop motion sequences. There are miniature sequences. There's a very famous one where we see the spinner. That's the, uh, the cop flying cop car that Deckard uses, mm-hmm. uh, coming in over the city. And we've got the, the mm-hmm. blimp and, you pan and, down. The, and the holographic, uh, uh, Shigeisha, the holographic advertisement and the whole city and everything like that. So they did that all in camera with, if I'm not mistaken, 15 passes, and it's all motion controlled, so everything can repeat the movement exactly the same way. And the way that you do that is you take, let's say you have ISO 800 film. And so for those of you who aren't film people, that's the speed at which the film, they call it film speed, um, absorbs light. So faster film, you can shoot in darker conditions because it's more sensitive, right? Mm-hmm. slower film, you know, you need to shoot ASA 100, ISO 100, ASA and ISO are interchangeable. Um, you know, you'd be shooting in broad daylight, you know, 400 is good for like a cloudy day, you know, e- uh, afternoon and early morning. And then when you want to shoot indoors, you need to be 800, maybe even faster. Um, you know, shooting at night, you need a lot of speed, you know, 3,200, maybe push it to 64. So you take your exposure, you say, well, what's our here's the lighting here's our film speed here is our uh shutter speed you know this is how much time per exposure we're giving the camera here's our aperture do the math what is um what's the exposure time that we would need to properly expose that image and let's say it's a um it's an eighth of a second shutter you know you need an eighth of a second shutter or actually typically in film it's a half second shutter because um of the way that the the shutter actually works on uh, reflex motion cam- picture cameras. So whatever. Um, you don't really play with your shutter speed that much. But for argument's sake, let's say it's an eighth of a second. Okay. I want to do all of these effects in this crazy moving stop motion shot. You know, we have 
the actual shapes that we want to make sure we capture. We want to get the lights in the windows we want to capture. We want to make sure we get this holographic thing that we're going to project, and that's got its own luminous level. And we want to get the tail lights on the spinner. Then we want to come in, we want to put atmosphere in the air. We want to put fog in it. We want to illuminate that so that we see all of that. All of those things have to be done as different passes so that you can have specific controls over them and specific levels of exposure. So you take that eighth second of exposure time that would fully expose the camera. We're going to do 15 passes. You have to divide that by 15 Mm. um, so that you're only ever doing that much of an exposure at a time at that level of light. And it's even more complicated than that because every time you're doing a pass, you're probably using different amounts of light, right? So you have to keep redoing this math. And then they literally took that piece of film. They did one pass. Okay. Spool it up again. Same film. Put it back in there. Mm spool it up. Same film. And they did that again and again and again and again. Um, with optical printing, with compositing, you would shoot on new film with traveling mats, parts together, of it that right. weren't exposed, and then lay them together in post mm-hmm. or something like that, right? Um, and uh, 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 so I, I read that like nobody ever made a movie like that yeah, ever again. Yeah, that sounds absolutely batshit. And you didn't know, and you spent like, a, you know, days getting well, this one stop motion sequence, and so, then you find out that it didn't get out. If you know, it didn't it work. Yeah. So I guess I didn't know this about Ridley Scott either, but he is a producer's nightmare. He's a different man. <laughs> yeah. Well, but he's just like, like one quote I heard said that like on day one of shooting, they were all walking around saying we're five days behind schedule already. Like, because he was on creating new problems on day one that added time everywhere. Just. I think that if this man could, he'd probably shoot one film for the rest of his life. It sounds like unless somebody reigns him in. Oh, I don't think that's the case. I mean, he's super prolific. He puts out a movie every year, generally. It was so bad that like the producers took creative control away from him at some point in the filming process. Yeah, in post, they re-edited it. That's like the big story about this. It says hours after the final final scene was shot. So it was also during shooting. I don't the final scene of the movie, not the final scene that they were shooting maybe i it may have been shot sequentially too maybe ridley um but i do know that the once it was in the can for sure he lost control and that's why there's been so many re-releases of the movie right which we'd have to dive into the um so to his credit um except for maybe like prometheus and stuff like that and the alien sequels which are eh, not great I don't think the guy's got a miss, you know? I mean, I think he clearly knows what he knows what he was doing. Um, I, uh, I mean, maybe I should pull up his IMDb and just take yeah. a peek and see if there's anything that's garbage in there. Well, he made one um, of my favorite movies of all time. What's Thel- that? Thelma and Louise. Oh yeah. See, exactly. Like, and that's, what's so crazy about him. He works in every genre. Right. So, well, and you don't think of like Thelma and Louise, the way that it's shot, like on location. It's not backlots. It's like right in 1991 when that movie was made, you didn't see a whole lot of movies like that. I mean, that movie was just epic. So he did a lot of music videos and just to run through this and like movie music films, which I can't offer commentary on. And he did commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, but like to run through his his credits here, for, starting from the duelists, because before that, I certainly have no opinion on it. It's TV. It's it's music videos, music films, duelists, alien blade runner, um, 
the famous 1984 Apple Macintosh commercial, <laughs> Legend, uh, Black Rain, uh, Thelma and Louise, uh, Conquest of Paradise, 1942, White Squall, G.I. Jane, Gladiator, Hannibal, Black Hawk Down, Matchstick Men, which is actually really cool, Kingdom of Heaven, which I actually also really enjoyed, but I haven't revisited it. Uh, All the Invisible Children, which I don't know anything about. A Good Year, which I have no any opinion of. I don't know anything about. American Gangster, I quite lot mm. liked. Body of Lies, I quite liked. Robin Hood, I know people didn't like it. I loved it. Um, I have, oh, it's a short film. Thunder Perfect Mind. I have no idea what that is. Prometheus, I don't know what the hell that is. The Counselor, well, I did see Prometheus. I wasn't in love with it. I think it's having kind of a resurgence. I think people are enjoying it now. Okay. It's like one of those movies where at the time, I feel like everybody was like, what the fuck is this? But I feel like you know, like the prequels, the Star Wars prequels. I feel like younger people I see on TikTok responding to it very, pro- <laughs> right, very positively. Right, they grew up with it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The Counselor, well, they should not have. It's not a movie to grow up with. It's a fucked up movie, but sure. The Counselor, The Vatican, I don't know what that, oh, it's a TV movie. Exodus, Gods and Kings. Okay, yeah, so, oh, he did The Martian? I had no idea he directed The yeah, Martian. Yeah, he did The Martian. Alien Covenant, which is a sequel to Prometheus. Um I don't know. At this point now, he's off my radar. I don't know a lot of the stuff. All the money in the world, the journey. Uh, he directed that TV series, Raised by Wolves, which I could not fault on its competency. It was very competent. I just could not. I had zero interest in it. Yeah. Um, the Last Duel, which I never looked into it. I was wondering if it was a sequel to um, The Duelists, but I don't think it was. I don't think it was related to that. Oh, my God. He directed House of Gucci? That's what <laughs> no. I saw that, too, and was surprised. I didn't know that. I had no idea. Yeah, and I guess what's so crazy is like he just works in any genre, every genre. He's all over the place. You know? Yeah. He's not a he's just a sort and, and I would say Elman Louise. Yeah. Blade right. Runner. Um, I mean, like, yeah, it's a lot of big stories, sort of action and yeah. stuff, but like he's definitely working in other stuff forms. Yeah, yeah, too. yeah. Um is Gladiator worth a rewatch? I haven't seen that movie since I was uh, I think it's a pretty younger. good flick. Is it? Maybe we should put it's that on the good list. Flick. We I've should been, put that on the list. I've, yeah. It's come up a lot lately, and I've been itching to watch it. So might I as would well. personally be more interested in doing Kingdom of Heaven because I, I have very positive memories of seeing it in the theater, and I haven't checked it out since. Okay. But also, I know there's a director's cut that is really um, much praised. So, yeah. um, but uh, we could do both. We could do a Ridley Scott series. We could do Alien. We should do Alien. Yeah, Alien. I'm. Yeah, Alien. I mean, we should do. Alien one, two, and three, probably right. Three. I don't know Adventure. what is. What do is it? It's like I hear one of them comes back around, like one, two, three, and four. I don't know. Or is uh, it just one and two? Alien and Aliens are are both top notch films. Alien three is interesting because it's like David Fincher's first movie. Uh huh. Um, but it was ultimately one of those things where he had very little control over it, and it got. It's the one where she's in prison, uh, in a monastery prison. And then Alien oh. 4 is the one where she's actually a clone because uh, they just couldn't let the series die. And they put Winona Ryder in it. And I remember liking huh? it. Oh, I, I, I should also put in a Ron Perlman. But like, you have to understand, like, I was just into the Alien series. I, I have right. not revisited these since I had like critical taste. At the time, I was just like, cool, Ripley's fucking it, shit up. That's what makes it fun to revisit, though. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, maybe it doesn't actually hold up. So I would do them all. We should just do the whole series. Why not? Uh, and I think that they, I mean, uh, there's Prometheus and uh, the other one, and I think they do just keep making them. A lot of people. So is Prometheus in the alien world? 
Oh, it's a, it's a prequel. Absolutely. Oh, it yes. is. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's about where the alien xenomorphs came from. A lot of people call them xenomorphs because they were referred to that way in aliens, but xenomorph just means life from outside, like ex- non-human. So that in that setting, they would have referred to every alien species as a xenomorph, um, but they just became known as xenomorphs because in, in the James Cameron one. Also, like the James Cameron one. That's two. He, right? like, is, That's aliens. Yeah. Aliens, which he sold by writing on a whiteboard to the producers, alien, and then ending it with a dollar sign. He's <laughs> 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 like, baby, we're going to make lots of money on this. <laughs> um, and, and he was actually slight tangent. He was told, don't make this movie because it's, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Alien, it's a huge hit. You're going to make a sequel. Um, and either it's going to be garbage and you'll be compared very unfavorably to Ridley Scott. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to just do what he did again, or it'll be good. And your credit will be given to Ridley Scott Mm. and Cameron, not a dumb guy. Neither is true. No, neither is true. And he made a movie that is nothing like the first one, right? Like it's a completely different kind of movie. It's a different genre. Um, you can call them both science fiction, but Alien is a haunted house horror movie or like a last girl slasher, really. Yeah. Alien, a little boring for me. Alien is boring for you? Mm-hmm. <sighs> uh, yeah, it is. Wow. Why? I, okay. It just goes on and on. I remember at one point during the movie, like, why am I watching? It was like watching paint. When was the last time you watched it? Three or four years during COVID. So like recent. Yeah, when not your brain too long ago. I'll, I'll revisit it for the sake of this podcast, but I remember being uh, pretty bored. All right. No one would call Aliens boring. That's, um, I'm sure that's true. But Alien is a slower burn. No question. No yeah. Question. And there's um, parts of it, it that are iconic that are great. The end of the movie, like definitely. From the shuttle Moves, on. Anyway, like we're, crazy. we're, we're yeah, way yeah, off we're way, yeah. Well, we're on Ridley Scott. We're not that off. We're in No, it's a tension universe. film, though. It is a haunted house movie. Like, sure. it's supposed to be like, it's a horror movie. You have to watch it as a horror movie. Right. You know, it's a slasher. Which generally, really, I like. I like suspense building yeah. films. I don't know. I'll have to revisit it, and we will props. talk about it on the Alien uh, episode of this podcast um, coming. This is much maybe next. Soon-ish. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, um, but uh, I don't even know how we got over here. Let's get back to. Well, we were talking uh, about we were uh, talking about uh, Ridley Scott's filmography. Yeah, his career. So Blade Runner is a hugely ambitious movie, off the heels of Alien. Um, in it's science fiction, but in like an aesthetic that nobody had seen before. Right. You know, it's like inventing this new look that really defines. I mean, like you see people made movies that looked or tried to look like Blade Runner and comic books and manga and anime and video games and role-playing games that tried to look like Blade Runner for like another decade and a half after Blade Runner. And that is where like Ridley Scott gets full credit for the film. I think that like the idea to make a movie based off of what was the book, they had an idea to make a movie based on the Android stream of electric sheep, which is a Philip K. Dick story. And they couldn't find an angle that they liked, right? They wrote a lot of different versions of it. Then they brought in Philip K. Dick and he wrote the script. Oh, he came in? I think they were not came in. I think they shopped the idea around for a while and they weren't finding 
the angle they wanted to take. I don't even know if he was alive. Hold on a second. <laughs> I want to look that up. I that I have I've that would be when they were talking about just like the script writing process, finding the writers, yeah. finding the people to take this on. Um, mm-hmm. they got turned down a lot because nobody wanted to make this book. Nobody had the vision for it. When did Philip K. Dick die? Uh, he died the same year. He died in 82. Did he really? He died the year it came out. came out. So he would have been just barely alive. Oh, I think he saw it. I think that's like a thing. He got to see it just before it uh, was released or right. something like that. So then for a long time, they called it Dangerous Days was like the working title of the movie. That's interesting. Which is why the making of the Blade Runner is the documentary is called Dangerous Days. I gotcha. Well, I think about that though. Like we all know what Blade Runner means, but like when it came out, it's not from the book. Right. It's just a word. It means nothing. Exactly. I think like Ridley Scott turned it down at first because his brother just died of, or no, he turned it down. He wasn't interested. And then, and then his brother died of cancer. And yeah. in the depression of that, he just wanted something to work on. That's interesting. And so he signed on to the project. And I think, you know, because he was in a pretty dark, depressed place, yeah. I think a lot of the mood of the movie comes from his state of mind. He's the last um, Scott brother because Tony Scott died yeah. uh, as well. I think he uh, took his own life. But like, I, it, it's just, you know, you hear about movies that have this really wild process to even become like, especially when iconic movies that feel like every beat of it is so thought out and so intentional and you like yeah. a million ways this movie never gets made or it gets made and it's not iconic. It doesn't look right how it looks, you know, and, and everything fell into place in just the right way to make this movie what it is. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. It was exactly, everything fell into place. And then once it fell into place, somebody like Ridley Scott, he didn't want to do it, but he found a vision for it. Like he was definitely not reluctant. Once he signed on, he was all in on this. (laughs) Oh yeah. He started drawing. He started creating the sets and he like, they got Sid Mead to come in and do concept work too. He's a great, um, he like draws science fiction cars. Like that's kind of what he does. Sid Mead also was involved in the design of the DeLorean for, um, back to the future. There's a car early in this movie that they were showing a shot of in the, in the documentary that I was like that it looks exactly like a DeLorean. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. Not the not the spinner. Not the actual. I don't think thing so. We, I think it's just like goes over in the scene. A background car, yeah. Yeah, it's just sort of there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Everyone started to believe in this vision of the project, which is why it was able. Like once it got to Warner Brothers, and it was Blade Runner, and it was Ridley Scott, and it had this vision behind it. They were there was no question they were investing in it. So oh yeah, it found its rhythm. Before it was shooting, for 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 sure. Oh yeah, it had to. <laughs> it didn't. It had to. So amazing cast. First off, well, not first off. We're way off first here. We're into fourth off. Third off. Fourth <laughs> off. Yeah. You got Harrison Ford. Yeah. Phenomenal. Uh, obviously, Harrison Ford can do no wrong. Basically, guy's incredible. Where is he in his career when this comes out? Uh, eighty-two. Um. Well, he's done Star Wars. He's done yeah, okay. American Graffiti. Has he done uh, the first Indiana Jones Raiders? or not yet? Not yet. I don't know when Raiders comes. I'm going to look up when Raiders comes out. Yeah. I think Raiders is in 81. Yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark is 81. 
Um, okay. So he's off wow. of the heels of that. I'm yeah, really he's like yeah, he in was, the height. He was Holly. He was King Hollywood, man. He was a big deal uh, right then. Um, and just you know, I don't know how many guys like Harrison Ford there ever were, but like, I'm operating on the assumption that at the height of his powers, he was a dude that ladies liked. Um, I feel like I've been told that. Um, I believe, but that. also like a guy that like dudes like, like you want to be, there's not a Harrison Ford movie where you're not like, God damn it. I want to be Harrison Ford. In this movie. I guess but at the same time, like Harrison Ford always seems like the ultimate fuck boy to me. And maybe that's because of Han, but wait a minute. What does fuck boy mean? Maybe I don't understand what it means. He's just like, um, or like a love bomber, like someone who's like, he has all of your attention. And then once he gets what he wants, he's like, Oh, bye. Well, I mean, on some level, I think guys want to be players. <laughs> right. He's like, that's a you know, player. You can call it player, fuck boy, same thing. Oh, so what you're saying is that like, you know, that, those guys, but they do fuck. So ladies do like that. <laughs> I'm not saying that they don't. That's not my point at all. I'm just saying that's what he is. Oh, so Harrison Ford had done a lot of work. You know, you always hear that he had just been a carpenter and he got American graffiti and he- right. Um, someone told him he was never going to be successful and right. Um, the re the reality is, is that he was a guy who worked in front of and behind the camera, um, for a while. He'd done a lot of TV. It looks like he was on Gunsmoke before he got yeah. American graffiti. He got, okay. He was the intruders getting straight Zabriskie the point like love American style, the FBI, like, you know, TV series, episodes, episode, 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 you know, small parts, probably in some commercials. I think he's, I think there's a, yeah. a commercial with Harrison Ford famously, but I don't remember what it was. And he, he'd been working since I guess 1966, um, as like an extra or a background guy. And he was doing car set carpentry as well. So he wasn't a carpenter sure. that you call to like fix your, you know, whatever your house. He right. Was a, that story always makes it sound like he was plucked out of obscurity by some talent scout and thrown into a movie. The vision I always had was like, uh, so George Lucas had a guy working on doing, you know, in my imagine I was like, Oh, a carpenter. So he was like, yeah, fine chiseling, like the banister on George Harris, uh, George, George Harrison, <laughs> George Lucas's, um, uh, staircase or whatever, and George Lucas was walking around. I was like, you know what? I think you're gonna be in Star Wars, kid. And like that's what happened. I'm gonna make you a star. He was building sets, and so he did. Uh, he, he did New Hope, you know, which wasn't called the New Hope then; it was just called Star Wars. And then he did some other stuff. He did Ken Boy. Well, actually, sorry, he did. Um, that's what I wanted to know is if that was he did American Graffiti which was, I guess, kind of a breakout for him. Then he did one episode of Kung Fu. Then he was in The Conversation, which doesn't get discussed a lot, but that's a great movie we should do. Um, definitely, I think, one of my favorite movies of all time and mm. almost certainly my favorite um, uh, Coppola movie, my fr favorite Francis Ford Coppola movie. Um, then he did something called Petroselli TV series with Tom Brannigan. I don't know what that is. Mm. Uh, TV movie called Judgment. Uh, a TV movie called Dynasty, which I think is Dynasty the movie. Um, it's a TV movie called The Possessed. Then he's in Star Wars. Then he's mm. in something called Heroes. Then he's in Force 10 from Navarone. Then he's in Star Wars Holiday Special and a short film called The Story of the Faithful Wookiee. Uh, <laughs> TV again, Hanover Street. 
another Coppola movie, Apocalypse Now in 79, mm-hmm. Frisco Kid, then a sequel to American Graffiti called More American Graffiti, which I don't fully understand <laughs> because he dies in American Graffiti. Um, Flashbacks. And Yeah, maybe. And then he's in Empire, and then he's in Raiders, okay. and then he's in Blade Runner. So Goodness. a real overnight yeah. success here. You know what I mean? Yeah, he really yeah, yeah. just exploded onto the seat. I, he, that's the truth, right? People, He's a 30-year making overnight success. Right? Yeah, right. He, um, he grinded away at it for a long time. Absolutely. I've heard the new TV show he's in with um, Marshall. Oh, Shrinking? Yeah, I've heard that's good. I I have heard that. I kind of want to check it out. Yeah. So, and then he did, you know, any movie he wanted for like right. the rest of his career. Yeah. Basically. Some really funny stuff. <laughs> seven Days and Seven Nights comes to mind right now. Cowboys and Aliens. He's done some, he's done some funny stuff. He's got a sense of humor. Seven yeah. Days, man. I saw that movie in high school with all my dude friends because I can like saw the commercial uh-huh. and I convinced them like, dude, dude, it's Harrison Ford seaplanes <laughs> adventure this movie's gonna be awesome it's gonna be like raiders but like not and like we went it was like this is a romantic comedy yeah, rom-com bro. on an island i guess it's a pretty good one but <laughs> <laughs> i haven't seen that since high school i'm i'm sure so anyway all that all that was a very long way of saying he was at the height of uh harrison fordness uh yeah of a of a long worked for a career. So we have a great cast. We got Rucker Hauer. A um, couple of movies I love that he's in. It's Flesh and Blood. Um, he's also in a great movie that's really hard to find anymore called... Um, Lady Hawk, very cool 80s action movie that has uh yeah, you know, we were talking a while ago about what's your favorite D movie. Lady Hawk ranks very high. Um mm. Matthew Broderick is in it. <laughs> mm. Plays <laughs> plays a thief. Um and then uh uh who else you got? You got um so many great character actors. James Hong is in it. Um I can't remember the guy who you know the other people's who are in here daryl hannah's in it daryl hannah of course yeah daryl hannah sean young plays rachel oh yeah sean young she didn't do a ton of work i hear she had some like issues i also guess like her her and harrison ford had like zero chemistry there's like a much longer cut of the sex scene between the two of them it was supposed to be like you know really earn its r rating and uh there's clips of it they shot it but i guess the chemistry between them was never quite there. So it got cut. I, I hope I'm not speaking incorrectly. And if I am, I apologize, but I feel like I read at one point that she had a drinking problem and the kind of drinking problem that made her basically impossible to work with for a long time. Mm. Um, so I think that that was an issue too, uh, with why she has not done a lot. Um, I don't think this movie works without her. She's phenomenal in this role. She's also perfect. For the role. Perfect. Yeah. She's, you know, you got, I don't know who some of these actors are, unfortunately. Like the guy who plays Terrell. Oh, uh, James Almost is in it. And uh, that guy who always plays the same dude. <laughs> uh, he always plays like the kind of corrupt cop. What's that actor's name? Uh, M. Emmett Walsh. M. Emmett Walsh. Okay. Yeah. And William Sanderson is Sebastian. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Joe Turkell. Right. Joe Turkell 
who plays uh, you know Tyrell, the the head of the company. He's wearing those crazy eyeglasses, so you don't recognize him. He's the bartender in The Shining. Oh, I see it. Oh, yeah, that's his profile picture in IMDb. Yeah. Also, James Hong I, I met, yep, is in this movie. James. Did you say him? Did, James I Hong, did. who is notably in every single movie. Yeah. Uh, and in Everything Everywhere All at Once, which we talked about him a bunch in that episode. Yep. Uh, and then Brian James and uh, Joanna Cassidy playing the other two Nexus Sixes. Um, the, I, I don't know. I, I, I love this movie so much. It's so good. It's so... What this movie pulls off, and people are going to ask anyway, like, what did you think of Blade, the sequel, Blade Runner 2248 or whatever the, the year is? 2049, I think. But what did you think of that? I think that what this movie has going for it is that it's fun. And, oh, it's the dark, it's a very dark movie. It's so depressing. It's so heavy. Yeah, but it's still fun. Blade Runner is it's it's fun the way any noir is fun. Like you want to be that detective to some degree. You want to be solving that crime. You want to be swimming in the gutters and drinking. You know, I don't know. Like it's a yeah. He's a more nuanced, conflicted character than most action heroes you see. So there's more to sink your teeth into with his. You know, he, when he kills the, the snake lady, the snake, snake lady replicant, Zora, but yes, the snake lady, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, the snake replicant. Um, he's conflicted about it, which is very noir y to me. It's not, uh, it's not total recall, it's not, uh, everything for my mission no. for survival. You know, it, it's a much more interesting character to go on this journey with because it's like. Where does all that lead? Especially when you put Rachel into the mix, someone that he has feelings for. She asks him, did you ever retire anyone who wasn't a replicant? No. And he's, she plants the seed. I didn't, I thought this was always just a fan theory, but she does actually plant the seed that he could. How do you know you're not a replicant? If I am. You ever take that test yourself? Yeah, right. And they don't ever confirm or deny that he is or isn't besides the old photo he has of a family member. Right. And what is, um, he, I think he, he says, no, he never gave it to himself. Um, but yeah, if I'm not mistaken and I haven't read androids do androids dream of electric sheep, but I think that what I've read about blade runner is that it's not a question in androids. Like, you know, he's a human. And in fact, he does have a moment where he's worried he might not be, but he gives himself a void comp and comes out. Okay. Um, and I think that that's a key difference in Blade Runner because the, the fucking core thing in Blade Runner, in addition to all of the other stuff that's, you know, right there for you to see is, am I a, bla- a replicant? That's like the theme of the movie right. is Deckard a right. replicant. And like for years, Ridley wouldn't answer that question, but I, I heard him in an interview somewhat recently. You know, at some point you may as well just tell everybody what was in your D&D campaign that they'd ever got to see. And he's like, of course he's a replicant. <laughs> like, oh, you know, he does? He says very that. Very recently. It was like within the last five or 10 okay. years. He's like, obviously he's a fucking replicant. Ridley is cantankerous. Huh. If you ever watch any movie with his director's commentary, he is, he's tough. He seems like a tough guy to work with. He's like a tough guy. Okay. Yeah. It, like for, for this behind the scenes, they're mostly talking to cast and crew. Uh, he's in it, but 
you know, you can tell the careful language that everyone is using to say this man is impossible to work with. And it's much less guarded than other than other places you see that, which makes me believe that like this isn't a secret. Everybody knows this. So we could sort of openly talk about it, but we can't just be openly insulting to the man. But he's he's a powerful dude, man. He he made some money for yeah. the studios. One guy says like I'd worked on aliens and what I knew about him is the man rolls a lot of film. Yeah. <laughs> so he just does take after take. Also, like the prop guy was talking about how he came onto set and there's a shot with a uh, sort of thermos looking mug in the foreground on Deckard's okay. desk. And he had brought in like five mugs for him to look at, thinking like this is a normal amount of mugs for a prop designer to bring bring a director. And really Scott just looked at them and was like, this is all the all that you brought me right like none of these go get more yeah and so they just started bringing him hundreds of pencils mugs everything and like everyone basically says he will not make a final decision until he's absolutely forced to which oh is that an infuriating way to work (laughs) because you just always have to have the next one handy another option handy what it sounds like to me is that like he does not want the creative inputs of anybody else on the set. He doesn't want a prop person to pre-select five from the thousands of mugs that exist to be the options. Right. He wants to see every mug in the world and choose one. Your job is to just bring me all the mugs. I'll make the choice. I don't need you to filter the mugs. (laughs) Bring me all the fucking mugs. I don't, this is my movie. This is all, every inch of it is my vision, Um, which is insane. It's a school of thought with directors. You know, it's the, the opposite sure, if of you've got go. unlimited time and, and money. If it's not a business, then yeah, sure. And, and these are the waning days of that. This is back when, you know, the 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 director could. You know, I don't think any more of that happens. There's too many other fingers in the pie. Yeah. I mean, my read on it was also just like a fear of making the wrong choice. From him. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. I can neither confirm nor deny that. I like the idea. So I guess the original storyboards for the opening sequence, the opening sequence, meaning not the opening opening, but the interview between the first replicant that we meet and the and Leon, Leon who gets killed, no, Leon right? Kills. No, Leon's the replicant, yeah. but the who kills the detective that's interviewing yeah. him, which is presumably why they bring in Decker. Uh, yep. Holden gets killed. Okay. So that character never existed. The original storyboard storyboards were like Deckard sitting in what looked like a cabin, like a regular looking cabin, right? So you're in the woods, like a log cabin, like a would be cabin in the woods. He's in the kitchen. So you can't see outside where Mm. he is. And you see a futuristic looking car in the window and a farmer guy dressed in farmer's clothing comes in and there's like a pot of soup that's heating up on the so like a very normal looking scene right and this guy walks in and asks him with just walks right past Deckard straight to the soup and asks him do you want any soup and Deckard just kills him and then reaches into his mouth and pulls out this like aluminum denture looking thing that has a serial number on it god it's pretty gruesome and so that was like how you were sort of shocked into this oh yeah world of Clones and I kind of like the way what goes better, honestly. I think so too. I agree. There's no call to action for your hero in that one. Yeah, 
you don't get this moment where Deckard's like, I'm retired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is important. Well, and there's like a school of thought, and I heard Ridley, I think, himself pose the question in that same interview, does Deckard even exist before the first frame of this film? Right. How how do you know he wasn't sat down at that noodle bar and switched on? Yeah. And the rest of it's all just, you know. Well, and isn't that what makes, like, that's what bridges the gap for you, you've said this before, between like cyberpunk and noir. Yeah. So I, I think that- It's the who right. am I? So like I said, I read this book that broke down the history of noir. I forget who wrote it and where did I read it? Somebody asked me, where did you get that book? You know where I, I got it from? I saw it sitting on a teacher's desk at SVA when we went to school and I took it. And that's where I got a lot of good books from. Thief. Yeah. I just picked them up and I would just read whatever I saw. I, you know, I went to school <laughs> a little later in life and um, I went there like with a mission of like, I will absorb, I will absorb all of the things. And sometimes I forgot about that. And sometimes I was really good at remembering that. And at that time I was just like info, feed it to me. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know who wrote it or whatever, but it broke down the idea that um, neo-noir after a touch of evil, which is regarded as the final noir is not about finding the interloper, but about finding the detective is in search of themselves. Um, still a detective story, still finding an interloper, but the, the tension of the movie is the director figuring out who am I? Um, and then cyberpunk is that cyberpunk at its core. And all these people are going to show up and fucking, well, nobody's going to show up because not a lot of people watch our show yet, but people are going to show up and say, no, but cyberpunk is about cybernetics. But like the school of cybernetics isn't about metal arms. Cybernetics Mm -hmm. is about feedback loops. And the central question that cybernetics gets to at like kind of the apex of this long field of study is, wait a minute do we have actual consciousness or are our actions right or free yeah, will. are our yeah. actions just feedback loops and so the central question in all cyberpunk media in addition to all of the other speculative fiction parts of it you know about rampant capitalism and stuff like that are is do people exist does the soul exist well and this one bridges that gap so well because the could he be a replicant is such a sliver in this yep. movie whereas if you look at total recall or robocop that's the entire movie that's yep. the whole focus of the question is is am i real is yeah are you real do you exist and in this one it's more it leans more to the noir noar than to the oh, cyberpunk yeah. but it's also it's in, there, in there absolutely. you know yeah it doesn't have to be loud it just has to be it's the backbone yeah it's the backbone of the story it's, it's there it, in yeah. that that central question of what it, you know the cyberpunk story isn't necessarily the main question it's the the spine mm-hmm. of that that everything else kind of connects back to well and apparently for ridley scott that was in the background for him the whole time and it wasn't it was totally part of the story uh ridley scott never read the book <laughs> right <laughs> i respect that choice which it seems like they had gotten further and further away from the sort yeah. of original source absolutely. material at yeah. that time. I think that's absolutely right. And I, honestly, I respect, I mean, like he was like, why would I read the book? I'm not making the book. I'm making the screenplay. You know, I need to right. read the screenplay. If I read the. Again, this is mine. My I mean, this, movie, he didn't my write it, work. you know, I mean, yeah. but like to some extent, I think that's a really smart choice because if you read the book, all it's going to do, all you're going to do is be like, oh, but that's not in the screenplay and you're going to fuck up mm-hmm. the writer's vision, you know? Um, I would go with that choice. I don't know that I would have the the wisdom to make that choice in advance, but in re- hindsight, I think that that's a wise move. Uh, 
takes a lot of confidence. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't though. At the same time, like the script is the roadmap. It's right there. Yeah. I, I hear you. But when you're a young director, you're like, I'm going to come in prepared. I'm going to oh. kill like any sort of nerves yeah. leads you to be like, oh, I'm going to over research. Yeah. I'm going to. I think yeah. Ridley Scott has a lot of confidence. <laughs> yeah. It sounds <laughs> like maybe it. too sounds much like confidence, it. but you know, yeah, he's not worried about making people uncomfortable. Oh, no. I guess the no, other no, thing no. I don't think he has I read was like, <laughs> No, this set was a miserable place to be. Like, if you look at behind the scenes footage, they're all wearing masks because the smoke, they were just blowing smoke into the set constantly. Yeah, and they were using like the type of smoke you'd use to smoke out a beehive. Oh, that's weird. I don't know yeah. why. That's someone said that in the in the making of. And also because it's raining so much in this movie, by the end of shooting, everything was like moldy and mildewy. So you'd walk onto this set that was like Ugh. humid and mildewy and filled with smoke. Uh, uh, <laughs> it just sounds awful. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> and then you'd work for 12 hours a day. Right. Probably headache. at least. Yeah, exactly. Plus, plus people probably smoking oh, on set at that Everybody's time. Everybody's chain smoking. Yeah. We need more smoke in the scene. Yeah, yeah. light up. One of the producers, I guess, said he jokingly asked Ridley Scott if he had smoke billowed into his house. <laughs> like he just likes to live like this. <laughs> so he chooses to be. <laughs> you know, I gotta say too, the safety of like smoke technology has come a long way since back then, oh, too. Yeah. Like you hear two people talking about, I think it was on the set of aliens, they were talking about the smoke. Um, not Ridley Scott, James Cameron. And they were talking about the different kinds of smoke because there's different smokes and different scenes. And they were like, it all of it was so toxic. There's this stuff called AB smoke where it was like two chemicals that combined to make smoke. And they used a lot of that in aliens um, because so much of it, you had to see it react and happen on scene when like the acid mm, would suddenly like start smoking. No, you needed there to be like a surface that oh. suddenly produces smoke. Oh, okay, um, and okay. so they had a lot of this. It's not an atmosphere. No, yeah. It's like chemical smoke reactions yeah. that they're dealing with. Um, stuff coming, you know, and like the A component coming out of like a, a a gun and hitting like a surface that's got the B component. So it produces smoke on impact. Um, shit that you can't do anymore. It's just like, I imagine it just smelled like melting plastic no all way. the time. Oh, Yeah. Melting plastic yeah. and ozone. Man, I keep thinking I had a thought here and I, it slips away every time about this movie Blade Runner. It'll come back. Sometimes. Mm. Oh, so we were talking about how like this movie has been re-released many times. And as we said, it was shot mm. um, and then seized by the producers to be edited as they saw fit and then uh, released that way. So the original theatrical cut was kind of a bomb. This is like an interesting thing too. To me, like this is the birth of the director's cut. This is, I think, mm. to my knowledge, the first director's cut. And it's crazy how it came to be. Um they recorded a voiceover for this movie. So they, they were like, nobody's going to know what the hell is going on here in this flick. So they brought in Harrison and they threw him in a booth and said, you're going to record this voiceover for the whole movie. He's just going to narrate the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to do it. He thought it was a terrible idea that would ruin the movie. And so he did the worst job he could do trying to satisfy his contract so with the hope that they would just not be able to use it. And that is the lesson. I kids. genuinely hate the voiceover in yeah. this movie. So keep, never, yeah, keep going. But I remember being like, I never do anything on camera that 
you don't want them to use because yeah. they're going to use it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the lesson. Wait, have you not seen the director's cut? Have you only seen the theatrical cut with the voiceover? Yeah. Meredith. We're talking about different movies. My assignment wasn't, wasn't to see the director's cut. We're talking about different movies. I went. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking different. That's insane. I'm sorry. It never occurred to me. I, you have to hunt out the theatrical cut. I had no idea. No, it's the only thing that came up. I went to watch it. I had to rent it. And it was, I'm pretty sure the theatrical. Well, it, well, it had, it had a voiceover. It had Harrison so. Ford saying, that was city speak in the beginning, a uh, pigged in of yeah. all these different languages. I was not given, I was not given options. You should watch it again. You should watch the director's cut. So I'm serious. <laughs> so you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, sorry. these nuggets I'm of knowledge so in your head, you gotta, you gotta have them come out. Hey, your yeah, mouth. Fair enough. But you went to film school and I thought, <laughs> I thought this was common knowledge. I apologize. I did not give a shit. Uh, a Blade Runner was not the movie that drove me towards film fine. school. Oh, God, man. That's so <laughs> crazy. Well, so what happened was this movie kind of bombed because, as you said, everybody hated the voiceover and the theater, the studio didn't get it. And it did. Like, yeah, as far as we didn't go through any stats on this movie, but it had a $28 million estimated budget and it grossed like. 32 million in the US. Yeah, yeah. It did. Um, so what happened was I think it was on TV. Uh Ridley got to do a TV release of his edit. And that's like the first director's cut. I don't know where it aired, but I'm pretty sure it was on TV. And then it was on Laserdisc. And then he got to do a full re-release of it as the director's cut. And that's the version most people see. Um I can't even, I don't know that I've ever seen the theatrical cut. So maybe we should go do this again where I watch the theatrical and you watch. We flip. Yeah, we flip. I'm really happy to know that because the voiceover for me, it was just like, oh God. Oh yeah, no, no. It's a much better movie. <laughs> uh, okay. And then um, I didn't think that we would have to do that because that comparison has been done to death. The um, Yeah. The, the, uh, then more recently, he did something he called the final cut, which was the director's cut with a couple of additions and changes. Most of which were fine. Um, you know, they're subtle. It was like almost like a special edition Star Wars where like I can do a better effect now, you know, a little CG here and there and stuff like that. I don't really remember any significant changes. The only one that pissed me off is a change to a line of dialogue. There's a scene in the movie, and I don't know if it's in the theatrical cut now, to be honest, where when Rucker Hauer meets Terrell, when Roy Batty meets Terrell and tells him, I want more life. And he gouges mm -hmm. out his eyes. He says, I mm -hmm. want more life, Fokker. I want more life, Father. I don't know how it sounds in the theatrical cut, but in the director's cut, he very clearly says, Fokker. And Rucker Hauer has said in interviews that it was a word he invented. He wanted to create a portmanteau of father and fucker and make it one word so that he can imply both meanings at the same time. And that to me is the coolest fucking thing I've ever heard of an actor doing. And in the, the final cut, they change it. So it sounds very clearly like fucker. <laughs> so in the director's cut, do you see that prop head? Like, do you see his thumbs go into the eyes? Oh, yeah. Okay. Cause I was, I, it's so interesting because they didn't mention, I was watching this behind the scenes and they didn't mention the director's cut because they were talking about how they made this $20,000 prosthetic 
head. And then you don't see it. So that he could push into the eyes and it doesn't make the cut. It's not even in the it's movie. A, it's a brief shot. It's brief, but it's, I mean, like it's not supreme. But in the theatrical cut, you don't see it at all. They don't ever cut. You see him start to grab the head and that's it. No. Yeah. You see the thumbs disappear and like the glasses shift and stuff. Yeah. And like, I, you might see a little blood, but there's a lot of screaming. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's pretty gruesome if I recall. But then again, I've also been told that like, you know, people remember the eyes of the baby and Rosemary's baby, uh, as like one of the most iconic images of the movie. And it's not in the movie. <laughs> There's no shot of mm. the eyes. And that's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. That's what I've been told upon that on both fronts. So, uh, maybe it's one of those, maybe I'm imagining that I saw it. Um, I I got started on this track and we skipped it, but the comparison, have you seen Blade Runner 2049? I did. I saw it once. I think I watched the two movies back to back because I wanted to watch 2049 and I had never seen Blade Runner. So I think I watched Blade Runner and then Blade Runner 2049, but I don't, I remember very little about it besides the fact that um, Ryan Gosling's in it and... It's much more to do with the replicant question, isn't it? Uh, I'm like you. I don't remember much about it either because I just remember it being boring. Yeah. Um, my, so that's what I was saying before is that like Blade Runner is fun. It has a pace to it. It's fun to watch. It is dark. It is a brooding kind of movie, right? But like noir is fun. The, the, the crow is mm-hmm. fun. Like it encompasses like, I don't know. There's something enticing about it. There's nothing there in Blade Runner 2049. There's nothing neat about it. There's nothing cool. There's nothing where you're like, I'm into this world. I'm into this setting. It's just uh, a bummer. Is there time travel in 2049? There is not. There's not. Okay. I thought there was like an element of like a loop of time or something. I must be flipping that with another Possibly movie. looper. Clearly I'd need to rewatch it. Yeah. There's no time. Did people like 2049? Yeah. People liked it a lot. Um, okay. I, I mean, Dennis, I don't know if it's Dennis or Danae. I don't know why I decided it. his name was pronounced Danae, but in my head, I pronounce it Danae, like the S is silent. Um, but I know his last name is very complicated. And I think it's Villeneuve or something like that. Um, he also did Dune. And for me, his movies, mm. you know, I said my, my take on Blade Runner 2049 was that it's a very beautiful movie. It's a very lyrical movie. It's got a very... Um, I don't know. It's, it's very artsy. And I felt like I want this movie to be displayed on a loop at the museum of modern art and it shouldn't be anywhere near a cineplex. Like it's not, Mm. it's not a movie I want to watch ever, (laughs) but I can't, I can't fail to recognize it's, uh, it's competence. It's the excellence of its execution. It's just, I don't need to watch this. I'll rewatch Blade Runner just about any day of the week. Um, but you know, Mm. not, not, I like to do and I felt that way about Dune too. Yeah. But I also don't like the book. Yeah. I know that's like extremely poor nerd for, form, but I hated Dune, the book. You're allowed to, you're allowed to not like it. I also don't like Rush. I'm just pissing off all the nerds right now. All the, all the hardcore <laughs> D&D nerds love Rush, love Dune. Um, not me. I don't like either. I like Rush. It has a few songs. I like subdivisions and I like, uh, you know, I like subdivisions. Um, but uh, no, I like Tom Sawyer, but I'm not like a Rush guy. I don't know anything about it's it. It's a band. Rush. You, oh, you like the band Rush. And that's a nerd Nerds thing. love Rush. 
Nerds, nerds love Rush. Nerds love Dune, the novel, and probably the movie. I don't like either. The novel also bored me. <laughs> I've never read it. I've seen many different versions of, like I saw the, was it 90s? Was that a TV? Oh, yeah. On the sci-fi movie? channel. Yeah. So oh, I've yeah. seen all of that. It's like That's a real. Four, four hours budget more movie. of it. And then, yeah. And then I liked the Timothy Chalamet movie. That's not his movie. He's in it. But um, I liked it. I'd see it again. Um, I will see the next again, one. Again, I kind of find, and I, I recognize it as a failure of a movie, but the... Um, Oh God! What's that director's name? He's so famous. The guy who did Twin Peaks. Fincher. No, David Lynch. No, um, Lynch. It's a failure of a movie. It was panned. It was a flop. But I kind of think the David Lynch movie is at least more fun. There's a lot more charisma in the David Lynch movie than the Dennis Villeneuve movie. Like it feels like it's occupied by actual human beings, where the Villeneuve movie feels like it's occupied by statues. But that is also how the novel feels. The novel feels like it's statues. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't remember feeling that way. Again, I have to go watch it again. I, I remember really liking that. A movie lot of people did. Locked out of a lot it, of people feeling, did. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a weirdo, so I don't fault people for liking yeah. it at all. Also, sorry, this is off topic. I'm just realizing that my mountain of pillows is behind me for these last two yeah, episodes we've shot. So look at those pillows. We got this couch delivered yesterday. Yes. We did not order any uh pillows oh. for the couch. And we got 10 of That's them. Nice. And now we don't know what to do. No, I maybe two of them I can use. I don't know what to do with the other. Give them eight. to your dog. So just pillows all over the house, everywhere. Stitch them together it's and a make very, a dog. Like New York City apartments are small. Yeah. We don't have room for anything. We don't that's need true. actively. Donate so, like Take them down. I think that's probably what will happen. Yes, they're going to go to Goodwill yeah. or something like that. Free pillows. Freepillows.com. I know. It's just like, but we can't sit on our couch, all of us, because there's a mountain <laughs> of pillows. <laughs> you got to get one of those vacuum bags. They just like, it was like, it was like a comedy yesterday. They kept pulling pulling them out and putting them on the couch. And I was like, what Where are the here? clown pillows? They're coming pillows. out of the clown pillow car. Where are these coming from? Who needs 10 pillows with their small sectional the, couch? The, I don't know. But apparently we did. What do you did. call it? The handkerchiefs that come out of your sleeve, but pillows forever. Yeah. <laughs> Just kept <coming>. So... Unfortunately, if you hopefully if Gladiator, the other episode we, we recorded today comes out, I apologize for my mountain of pillows in the background. They're distracting oh, for anyone. Like we did an episode on Gladiator. Oh no, the American Gladiators episode. Yes. The American Gladiators. Um also this movie uh inspired one of my favorite songs, Astro Creep 2000 by White Zombie. <laughs> um nice. yeah. It's, oh yeah. Um <laughs> I mean, we haven't, I don't know. There's just so many cool beats in this movie. So many fun interactions. There's for an action-y movie. There's a lot 
of acting. There's a lot of work for actors to do. A lot of scenes that are just kind of conversations, you know? Yeah, the action sort of comes in short bursts. They're not these long, drown-out scenes. There's like one scene that I would really call an Except action scene, which is the fight with Roy Batty. Like, other than that, like, they're kind of just homicides. <laughs> yeah, well, you get the, ch- yeah, right, the chase scene Zora. of Zora. Yeah. Who apparently that was her the actress's pet snake. Oh no shit. Darling. That's great. Which is why she was so like comfortable with the snake. Yeah. That's one piece of trivia, right? Good. <laughs> don't don't be like surprised. A <laughs> Useful snake. skill. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just yes, on your resume. Snakes can uh, turn on you, so that's why they're snakes. Uh, you yeah. know, you come prepared with your own snake. I feel a little better about that. Yes. I wonder so, if that's how she got the role. Uh, yeah, her, her Boss, she brings her own snake. snake. Probably, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's on her resume. Snake owner. They're like, you are the person. Yeah. Um, and then Daryl Hannah has a very athletic gymnastics driven fight. Scene. She has all that stuff though with Sebastian, though, where she's just hanging out and pulling hard-boiled eggs out of boiling water with her bare hands, and they're talking. And he's just like, I made you, uh, your friends, uh, the people I made. I made my friends. I made you. And uh, she's yeah, trying to. F- but she beats the shit out of Deckard. She does. She doesn't beat the shit out of Sebastian. She's trying to flirt Sebastian into giving her, getting right. her up to uh, the, um, sorry, uh, up to Terrell. Um, uh, Deckard shoots her and she does that thing where she like kicks the ground and stuff while she's dying. Um Pretty yeah. horrific stuff. I think there's a stunt double there who fails to match Daryl Hannah at all. <laughs> there's like a couple shots where it's just so like the story. Uh, the story. It's actually a male stunt double. The way at one point her leg kicks like almost straight yeah. up, and she couldn't get the angle quite right, yeah. and so they brought him in, put him in her outfit, and he does the kick, and then that's it. That's just oh, that's for it. Because that there's a moment shot. where I see a face, and I'm like, is that Daryl? That doesn't look like her. Well, there might be other stunt double stuff, but like specifically him being brought in for that. And he was like, and then I told them they get this one shot. And then I headed back to the dressing room and changed out of those clothes. It was very, uh, it sounded uh, like it was very threatening to his masculinity. (laughs) Maybe he just played it up for the interviews. Like he knows what he does for a living. I don't know. Perhaps. I don't know. Well, sadly, I have to go move my car soon. But is there anything else about this movie that? Probably. I mean, apparently I have to go watch the yeah. director's cut before I can even talk about it properly. So that blows my mind. Sorry for wasting everyone's time. No, it's not. It's it's interesting. <laughs> I wish I had known that coming into it, though, because I think that we would have had a very different conversation. Like a person who had only seen the director's cut. For, you know what I mean? Like, I think that there's a or rather a person who had only seen the theatrical cut talking about it to someone else. I mean, we saw different movies. Like it's crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm interested to know that because there were points at this movie where like you're saying how fun it is and how, and I'm like, I understand the merits of this movie, but like I would revisit total recall before I would revisit this movie. And I wonder if that assessment remains true after watching the director's cut. So total recall is a lot more fun. <laughs> right. Whereas because it's just so insane. But like I don't need a movie to be fun. There was just beats of this movie where I was like finding myself. Blade Runner is just cool. Like you just kind of oh, it's so cool. I want to be that kind of cool. I find that yeah. kind of cool and appealing. And Blade Runner 2049 is extremely not cool. I don't ever want to live in that world. Oh God. Oh God. It, sure. geez, it hurts my soul. Nightmare times. So um yeah. 
I don't really have anything else to say about Blade Runner. I mean, I do, but I'm done for now. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I got for now. Uh, In the version (laughs) you saw, was there shots at the very end of um, them driving up into the mountains? And the voiceover of she was different. She lived for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. shots, were there shots of a unicorn running in the woods? I don't remember specifically a unicorn. So there's the folded paper unicorns throughout the movie. And at the end of the movie, they show up as a dream that Deckard is having. And it, but that's maybe not in the theatrical cut because Ridley Scott explains, I used the footage of the unicorn from my other movie legend to get those shots. And I'm not mistaken, the shots of them driving up into the mountains through the woods were unused footage from uh, um, The Shining that Kubrick had shot. Oh, that, yeah, funny. The studio slammed in there. Yeah, they look very out of place, but I think they're supposed to, but they, you know, they look very out of place for the rest, the aesthetic of the rest of this movie. Turns out she was a replicant, but different. She just lived. Happy ending. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. She didn't have the four year. That doesn't happen in uh, the director's cut. There's no driving up into the mountains. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. She's she's dead. They don't explain. Yeah, she's going yeah. to die. It's not happening. Maybe just sort of ends. They don't need to say right. I did see alternate happy ending written somewhere. So that's definitely the ending that I got. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different movie. <laughs> It's a weird movie to have a happy ending. It's very unnecessary. Well, it was, I mean, to be like, and everything was yeah, fine. Yeah, but you're trying to make money in the Actually. theater. I totally get the instinct, but obviously it does yes. not serve the film. Yeah. Uh, the famous, one of the most famous happy ending rewrites is uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, yeah. You've said that. Because in the stage version, they all die. Oh. The plant consumes them all except for maybe Seymour because he has to live with the guilt guilt of Audrey and everyone going and in the movie it's like he saves her from the plant and they go on to live in there uh, somewhere that's green we should check out that movie because it's uh, it's a really interesting one Little Shop? It's a super interesting movie that's a good one Um, I love that movie if we're going to do a musical that sounds like a good one to do that or Crybaby barely a musical it's got a few musical numbers yeah and after watching Crybaby did you watch it recently it's like yeah it's not I feel like if we're going to talk I love it too but I feel like if we're going to talk about John Waters we have to talk about one of his pre Crybaby films more like yeah yeah, we've got to talk about like Pink pink Flamingos or something that is actually disgusting Crybaby is a pretty oh, no, it's mainstream it's yeah, yeah it's him yeah. crossing into mainstream cinema. like you got like you get you get hints of or, or i guess i don't know how i don't know the original hairspray how hairspray's gross or not that hairspray's is. pretty mainstream um it's, it's right. i would call it mainstream. i would imagine yeah i it was on so tv like all the time Pink flamingos kid, so. is the way is the way to go Pink flamingos is not mainstream well i i we got to do, no. I love his movies, but I do think it's super interesting where, I mean, I guess back then you could do it. Like he was making what amounted to avant-garde, not avant-garde, but like underground grindhouse gay cinema, not porn, but that's yeah. the way to describe it. 
not not far off. Yeah, like there are some porny moments. Um, yes, there's for some sure. bestiality in that one in particular. Yeah, like the most off-putting, I suppose, way to put it. Part of Crybaby is that like hatchet face exists yeah. and it's unquestioned. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. that and Tracy Lords. In Crybaby, yeah, that's like that's a behind the camera thing. So Tracy Lords is the girl who gets recruited into pornography by the pornographer. That's her oh, true okay. story. She was a very famous porn oh. actress, and then it came out like years later that she was sixteen, and then he put her in the movie oh. to basically play herself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's great. Yeah, he. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> he likes he likes to ride some very some very fine lines. Oh, I don't think it was, but I I don't I think that she, I mean obviously she was game for it, and I don't think it was an indictment of her at all. I think that together they were steering yeah. the industry that she had sure. sort of okay. transcended away from. Um, yeah, but I know that was a huge it was a big controversy with that movie too because again mainstream kind of family entertainment really in that movie not family but like a movie that you would definitely let your eleven and twelve year olds yeah. watch. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's nothing that offensive about it. No. All right. Well, now, now we've teased a future a John whole Waters bunch of stuff episode. In this. We have to <laughs> one. We got to listen to our own show and be like, "What did we say we were going to do?" Sometimes I write them. I've gotten to when I do my pass on them to write them down, so I've started to keep a log of that. So we will come back to some of these instead of just letting them linger there forever. I love John Waters so much. I I love that. <laughs> I just love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's great in an interview, but I, I listened to uh Ricky Lake has a podcast and she interviewed him on it, which was which was pretty fantastic. Oh man. Because they've got a shorthand, they really like each other. Oh, good. Th- there was a but and a similar outlook but, to the so industry. I was worried about what you were gonna say next. Oh no, no, no. They seem to uh, she, he's he's her mentor. And it it put oh my god. Okay, we got to do a John Waters episode. We should do a Ricky Lake Ricky episode. Lake show. We should go get well, so it it put Ricky Lake's 90s talk show in a totally different context for me. Oh, yeah. Because it was like, of all of the trash talk shows, hers was like with intention. Like she knew what she was making and she loved it because it was in the John Waters universe. I would be surprised to find out if like she was calling John, like, what do you think about this next week? I'm going to have this person on. And he was like, he "Ah." cameoed on a couple of episodes. Of course. Of course. <laughs> all right. Did. We will get into all of this. All right. Thank you to Annie Villalobos, our editor and producer. Uh, thank you. Thank you to Studio 71, our distributor and producing partner. Uh, thank you yes, to and Heather to- Vaughn, our brilliant artist who did the wonderful artwork for our show. And Great um, artwork. You know, we buy epidemic music sound. from Epidemic Sound. So. Yeah. Uh, the other contributor we'll that we pay up. for. <laughs> we pay you monthly man that'd be a great you're and welcome like title sequence just receipts for everybody's labor on the film <laughs> and like with what they got paid um yeah that's a cool idea i guess it makes it sound like we don't pay our artists which we do oh, that's true but that's true. uh <laughs> but we appreciate their work somewhat differently absolutely yeah all right good night good luck watch more movies Bye-bye.